Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up, making things happen, creative people, how they do their thing, why they do it, how they keep it going. That's what I love to talk about. Today, my guest is a filmmaker. His name is Jeffrey McHale, and he is behind the new documentary, You Don't Know Me, spelled N-O-M-I. It's about a movie that's given me a lot of pleasure in my life since it was released in 1995. That movie, of course, is Showgirls, and... Um, Jeffrey talks about that and uh, what inspired him to make the movie and a lot more in the interview. Before we get to that, I want to encourage you to have a virtual game night. Um, I will host it for you and uh, we'll play You Don't Know My Life. Um, get your people together. We do it on Zoom. We have this cool app that my co-creator Jeb designed where you enter the answers on your phone and then they come up on the screen. It's really cool. So you can learn about that at youdon'tknowmylife.com. It's become a fun little side hustle. And it's helped bring people together during a time when uh, people need to feel connected. So um, if you've got a birthday or something coming up, check it out. It's a great way to spend time with people that you're not with physically. That's at youdon'tknowmylife.com. All right. Now, without further ado, here is Jeffrey McHale. Hey there. Joining me via Skype, it's Jeffrey McHale. He is the director of the new film, You Don't Know Me, which is an examination of one of my favorite films, Showgirls. Very excited to talk to you because I am a Showgirls fan from way back. Um, what uh, inspired you to make this movie? Yeah, you know, I was a, uh, I've, like you, have been a fan of Showgirls ever since uh, I saw it. I, I kind of came to it late in life. It was about 10 years after um, it had become kind of a queer cult classic. And, um, you know, it was just one of those movies that, that I, I kind of kept revisiting and, and kind of kept kind of popping up in, in kind of strange and funny ways throughout my life. And I was actually at um, the 20th anniversary screening out here uh, in Los Angeles at Cinespia, where, uh, you know, Elizabeth Berkeley came and introduced the film. And it was after that that was, uh, you know, I just kind of started to... I was just more curious, you know, I, I wanted to kind of get a better understanding of why, you know, this, why this thing, you know, as queer people are like kind of drawn to it and, you know, why, why it's been, you know, kind of part of our lexicon over the last 25 years. So um, I'm a television editor by trade. So, you know, um, and I thought this was kind of like the perfect um, project to kind of work on, uh, on my own and weekends, evenings, and just kind of explore and see what was there. So I started to kind of just reading uh, everything about showgirls that had been written and was just really inspired by all the, you know, the wide range of, of theories and opinions and, you know, um, experiences with the film. And I just, uh, I just kind of wanted to go further with it. Um, I'm so jealous because I was not at that screening and oh. it was the kind of thing that my friends were buzzing about mm -hmm. via text chains that she's, that she's here. And I, yeah. that I, I remember sitting in my car and watching the YouTube video of her speech and how yeah. it, you could see how cathartic it was for her that she'd been through this horrible journey where I felt like yeah. she got scapegoated and, mm -hmm. and paid the price for the film's poor reception and to see her sort of feel loved and embraced after 25 years or whatever. Was yeah. it amazing to be there? It was beautiful. Um, you know, I, I like to say that it was the closest thing I've had to a, a spiritual experience, you know, just uh, being there under the stars. And then, you know, I, I think, you know, you go to those screenings um, usually like once or twice a summer and, you know, occasionally they'll have someone associated with the film will show up. So I, I don't think anyone even 
imagined anybody showing up. So I think that that's why it was so incredible. And, and, you know, we were in the back and it it was kind of funny because, you know, the presenter, the the founder of Cinespia was, you know, kind of gave his speech and then, um, and then he's like, Oh, and I'd like to introduce someone from the film. And, you know, there was, you could hear this like wave that was like kind of went through the crowd because it took her a couple minutes to actually like get in front of the camera. Right. It was projected so everyone could see it. So there was like this slow kind of wave of, of oh my God, you know, it's her, just get, getting to their feet. And, you know, it was just beautiful. Um, so, and the fact that we, we watched it there and with her and she said that was the first time she'd seen it with, um, you know, uh, and a crowd that embraced it. And that, that really kind of, kind of stuck with me. So. Well, yeah, because she would, didn't want to talk about it for years. Like it was, it was this horrible traumatic thing that happened in her career. So the fact that she came around again and was that warm, I don't know. It was very moving. There's a life lesson in there somewhere about yeah, uh, <laughs> hanging yeah. in. Um, <laughs> you tell the story or you, it's not really a story. You, you examine the film through different <clears throat> writers and different critics and then use clips. Talk to me about your approach and how would you describe it? You know, I went um, into this not really wanting to, after kind of basically after consuming everything that had been written about Showgirls, I, I thought that's where the story was. And, and I didn't really, um, wasn't really interested in kind of exploring a behind the scenes or making of. Right, you know, or about talking to the, the filmmakers and the people. That, that was what yeah, we were about. Yeah, you know, I, I, I was really inspired by other um projects like Room 237 and Los Angeles Plays Itself and and was really inspired by um, that kind of style of filmmaking where, you know, it's kind of VO, uh, audio commentary heavy. And um, so, yeah, and then I basically... Well, I, I, after speaking with everybody, you know, we, we did interviews for about nine months, you know, and they were, we didn't shoot a frame of video. It was all over Skype. I, I mailed an audio kit to everybody and we, we logged on to Skype. I helped them, you know, set up the microphone. And then when the interview was done, we, uh, you know, they sent it back. So I, uh, you know, f- basically uh, targeted people who were directly involved in the afterlife of Showgirls. So the people who've written books. Uh, poetry, musicals, you know, performers, artists, writers, and then critics too. So I kind of wanted a, a well-rounded range of, of opinions about this kind of complicated film in our history. Interesting. Well, I thought it was interesting that none of them appeared on camera, and now I understand why. They were audio interviews via Skype. Um, you use a ton of clips, not just from Showgirls, but from all of Verhoeven's movies. How hard mm-hmm. were they to get? I basically, it was the, you know, the way that kind of fair use laws now um, dictate, they, they give filmmakers like a lot of uh, kind of creative freedom to, to kind of explore and tell the stories that, that we want to. So I kind of went into that in mind knowing like, oh, okay, like there might be a way that I might be able to kind of use, use these if I kind of like can kind of make a strong enough argument, you know, for them. And so basically I wanted, I, after kind of watching all of Verhoeven's other works, I, I was just, my mind was kind of blown uh, when I saw all these other motifs and themes kind of jumping off the screen and kind of connecting back to showgirls, like all these kind of strange and weird moments in showgirls that kind of make you wonder like, what, like who, who comes up with that? Like, where does, where does that come from? It, there, there are threads back to his early work. So I, I wanted to kind of make a new subplot where 
Verhoeven's other characters and his other films were interacting with, you know, my contributors and then interacting with showgirls into this kind of make this new world where they all kind of blended together and improve, you know, and, and talk about how, you know, showgirls is Verhoeven at his purest, you know, like I think American audiences uh, dismiss it or doesn't, they feel like showgirls doesn't make sense um, because they're familiar with Robocop and Total Recall. But, you know, if you look at his body of work as a whole, it, it makes perfect sense. And so I, I kind of wanted to, to explore that, that idea and using his other films. Yeah, one of the points you made, or somebody made, is that the the sexuality stuff was in all of his movies, but when it came to the forefront in Showgirls and maybe Basic mm -hmm. Instinct, that's when he went too far. But it was always right. there in the other ones. But it was yeah, cloaked it was, in violence and action and everything else. Yeah, that was uh, yeah the brilliant Adam Naiman who wrote the book uh, Showgirls. It doesn't suck. He yeah. uh, kind of broke down about you know he he was kind of like my ver resident Verhoeven expert. Um, he you know definitely know knows him and his life and his career uh really well and so he basically just looked at the, the the criticism that you know those those blockbuster films got you know people responded to the satire they could they could see what he was doing they could understand his point of view but then when it comes to you know sexuality then you know i think american audiences had a harder time with that um and that's his you know that was his kind of argument where did you first see Showgirls? On video with friends? What was the setting? I saw it. Yeah, I saw it on video with friends. It was, uh, yeah, like Ducky said, ten years after. Um, I was in Chicago at the time. Uh, I went to film school there, and uh, I was just hanging out with a friend one one night in his apartment, and it, it was just you know Showgirls happened to come up, and I, I honestly don't know why it took me that long to see it. Right. And so we, we found out that I hadn't seen it. He walked over to his DVD shelf and <clears throat> popped it in, and I was just like. My mind was blown. I, I like could not believe that this was the movie. Like this was the movie, and you know, like most of the contributors in in the film is just like you know, everyone's like the first five minutes, the first six minutes, and it's just like mind blowing because you know it just doesn't let up, and you're like, is this is the whole movie going to be like this? Yeah. And yes, it is. Well, Nomi, the character played by Elizabeth Berkley, is very staccato with her movements and has this mm -hmm. anger thing and got ripped for her acting at the time. But when you look at it, no actress would do that. That would not be anyone's first choice. She That had to have come from Verhoeven. Oh, right? yeah, completely. And you can see it. You can see those those kind of erratic, jarring movements in a lot of his films and the way he, you know, the way he directs and the way that, you know, um, the camera movements. I mean, it's all there and it all kind of connects back. And, and I appreciate you know, a couple, it was, I think, around the 20th anniversary, Paul, uh, Paul did a round of interviews um, about Showgirls and, and basically, you know, took responsibility, said, you know, if, if, if it's anyone's fault, it's mine. I directed her to do that, you know. So he, he likes to say that, you know, he he um, kind of played up the, the erratic movements and he, he wanted this very, you know, um, intense, highly stylized uh, film. And part of that was, you know, her actions. So Yeah. I want Paul Verhoeven to get all the money he needs to make whatever movie he wants. <laughs> like Adrian Lyne to a, to a lesser extent, but definitely I want those two to just be able to do their thing because mm. those movies yeah. are always provocative and interesting and no one else is doing it. And yeah. And they don't make him like that anymore. No, he is a very unique, you know, point of view as a filmmaker. And, and you know, the fact that he's still over in, in Europe making films. I think he has another one supposedly coming out later this year. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, he's still he's still cranking them out. Watching it again, I'm struck by how beautiful it is to look at. Like just mm-hmm. splashy and colorful and rich and mm-hmm. like like just the cinematic quality of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah, spectacular. I mean, it, it, it's it's one of those. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, it, the the cinematography is beautiful. It's a um, he. It, it it's it's just it's so it, it's it's vegas it's 90s it, it's it's everything that you would would want it to be you know and uh i think that side of it probably i mean i read all the reviews about um about showgirls from the time and i mean none of them are talking about like the cinematography or you know a couple times you know they were said you know on a technical level it doesn't even succeed and i mean just looking at it now it's like it's clearly not the case you know it's a gorgeous film it is a gorgeous Um, film um and so but i think you know it was just everything else was so distracting that like yeah. it probably was just too much for people to to process you know like when you know you have all the nudity and like the vulgar language and you know the, like you said the erratic behaviors you know you kind of you can't sit there and just like admire the the beauty of you know the cinematography or you know the lighting and the makeup and the the costumes i mean it's just it all it's very fluid i mean even Verhoeven says um, he thought it was his. He still thinks it's his most elegant movie to this day. I could, I, I could know. see that, but also yeah. it was so loaded going in because it was NC seventeen. Everyone was just like on edge around all of that stuff yeah. that it was hard oh, yeah. to sort of for the smoke to clear to kind of kind of look at it. Um, there's a rape scene in the movie near the end with uh, Nomi's roommate and friend, and I remember a period when I'd sort of embraced the camp of it where I thought, oh, I wish that scene wasn't in it because it ruins mm-hmm. the fun. You know what I mean? Like, it ruins yeah. our gay fun. And now yeah. I kind of think, no, it has to be in there. Like, I'm a big yeah. proponent of it. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that scene? Yeah, I mean, it, that is is definitely complicated. Um, it, you know, just kind of I wanted to kind of get a better understanding of his kind of intentions for in, in, including that. And you know, I mean, they are a little questionable. I mean, David Schmader, you know, in his screenings, he skipped over it. You know, he he was just like, I, I, I we don't need to see this. You know, so he's been screening. Um, David Schmader is one of our commentators, and he was is on the official commentary track of the, yeah. um, the DVD, and he has been doing these live annotated screenings for the last you know twenty five years. And, and he um, he'll skip it. over that. Yeah, he'll skip that scene. And then he, he even has said, like, you know, I do get a lot of pushback from, you know, showgirls purists. Like, you have to in- include that. And so, it, it, I, I mean, that's his his choice and his his take for what, you know, what he wants to do for his screenings. I mean, it's one of those things that I think we can, um, I don't know if it should be skipped over because it's there and it exists. But I think, you know, what we can do is, is look at it and try to have like a better understanding of what works, what doesn't work, why it doesn't work, and then hopefully use that to like kind of better shape, you know, uh, the way we view those kinds of things in media and like the sensitivity yeah. that that surrounds it. An observation that I had was when it first came out and from the first, you know, 10 years of my love affair with it, <laughs> I thought, I thought it was a little over top over the top in the motivations of the people in power, the men. I, I mm-hmm. thought they're not that, men aren't that awful. Mm-hmm. And then the lesson of the last five years is, no, they're exactly that awful. Mm-hmm. You know, between Weinstein and Trump and Cosby, and they are all of, 
as awful as the people in the movie. So mm-hmm. what seemed over the top then, you know, maybe they had some of that right. Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely. I mean, we, yeah, we are, we live in a, a, a misogynist, you know, patriarchal culture, society, you know, so, so all of that is going to kind of shape uh, those stories and the way, I guess also the way that we, we tell them too. And hopefully, you know, we can kind of learn, you know, as we go and yeah, like there is this evolution that was like kind of the interesting thing about it is even within, you know, the gay community, you know, there is this evolution about, you know, the acceptance, the understanding of it, the embrace, you know, now there's all these other things that, you know, we're aware of and, and you know, with that have been, the light has been shown and all these like disgusting parts of our society that, you know, you can't really look at those things the same way again. But I, I think that, yeah, it, it is this interesting film because, you know, we're not, you know, like one of my contributors said, you know, we're not done with it. You know, it's one of those things that the reason we're still talking about it is because we're not done with it. And, you know, I mean, I love seeing stuff on on Twitter. People just, just, you know, for some reason, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of people have just discovered Showgirls for the first time, you know, so you see a lot of like, oh my gosh, just watching Showgirls for the first time. And um, it is kind of funny just to see this this crazy, insane, you know, offensive, vulgar movie from you know the the mid '90s uh, still kind of uh, provoke so much conversation. Yeah, what's it been like to put out your movie during this time? It's um, thankfully, I mean, thankfully, we did our festival run last year, so we we really lucked out. We um, premiered at Tribeca, in New York, uh, last April, and then. You know, kind of screened all over the world. I mean, it was um, awesome, uh, and we we did have a couple festivals still scheduled for this year, and pretty much, you know, right at the beginning of March. I mean, we were supposed to play in in London again. Um, we were supposed to play, I think, another spot in Canada, but basically, like, they just slowly kind of just started getting canceled, and so you know, that was all understandable. I I, I got it. Um, I, uh, you know, I understood why, you know, I was like, I can't believe when some of them were still planning on going forward. I'm like, how, I, I don't see people going to see movies at festivals in, in two weeks. Yeah. Um, but, but thankfully, you know, um, the, you know, everything was kind of sealed up with our distributors and, you know, they're, you know, still interested in moving forward. So that was you know, a huge relief. And, you know, I'm, I'm just excited to finally get it out there. I mean, I got lots of requests on, on social, like as soon as like the week one of people hunkered down being like, release this movie now. Yeah. We need it. We need <laughs> yeah. It. I was like, Oh, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah. In the movie, you connect showgirls to other camp classics, mommy Dara's mm-hmm. Valley of the dolls, which in my own life and in my friends, those are all touchstones. Can men be campy? Or is it just women? Uh, that's a good question. Can men, um, can men give us gay camp that we would love? I don't think uh, so. It's Maybe. different. I mean, yeah, I, 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 that's a good question. Yeah, I, I don't know if I've seen, I mean, there are, I guess you can have campy characters. You can have, I mean, men can portray camp, but I don't, I don't know if, if we're, you know, we're going to be as drawn to it as, you know, the way in which we are, you know, those female characters, you know, I mean, there's something about it. So, um, yeah. I mean, what do you think? Do you, are there any, I, d- I don't think it's the 
same thing, but maybe there's some yeah. example out there that has that same over the top, really committed, you know, what's the male equivalent of Faye Dunaway and Mommy Dearest where they're just so yeah. in it. Um, I don't know, but yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's kind of crazy. I was looking around your website. You did a fun thing with Vogue, the Vogue video. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm, you know, an editor. Uh, so it just when I have these little ideas, they they kind of uh, pop into my head. I'm like, I have to do this right now. So um, <clears throat> I think that Madonna's. Uh, I forget what came first. It was it was the like the, some behind the scenes, not behind the scenes, but it was like raw outtakes from the Vogue video. Um, and they were, you know, kind of hold the clapboard was kind of going in between them. And you could kind of see in those like interesting moments that, that didn't get used in the final film. And they were long takes. And so I searched around online for um, the vocals too so i had found like some raw studio vocals you know where you kind of hear her breathing in between them and stuff so i was like oh this would be kind of like a perfect uh to kind of merge the two um and so yeah kind of made the the the, the outtake the outtake reel the outtake reel that's fun um in you don't know me you do a section about the live showgirls musical which i was never able to see where was that done at it looked amazing yeah, that was in New York. Um, it started in New York, and then um, Peaches Christ did a version in San Francisco. So he he brought it and did the West Coast screening. But it was um, Bob and Tobley McSmith. They do lots of off-Broadway musicals, um, all kind of focused on pop culture uh, shows or movies. And they had done... Um, Saved by the Bell, and that's how they met their um, their Elizabeth Berkeley, uh, April Kidwell, and so she got the part to play uh, Jesse Spano, and everyone just you know fell in love with her, and so they after Saved by the Bell was done, they they basically said, well, why don't we just do Showgirls? We already have you know our uh, the perfect uh, Elizabeth Berkeley, so they basically made that did that play for her, and so um, it's great, and I love the. <clears throat> the um the kind of like the rawness of like the old old older like the first performances because when when it went to san francisco with peaches christ you know they i think they played at the castro i forget what theater it was but it was like you know more elaborate you know kind of lighting and st- like a like a proper uh you know theater stage and you know in new york it was you know kind of like your classic black box um and Some shows are better was, in that rough and tumble. Yeah, it, it, it was so good, and so, and, and I got that footage late, um, you know, later in in the edit. You know, I had you know April um, talking about it, but it was basically them like trying to track down who has a copy of these these recordings, and it was. I guess one of like the production managers had like a DVD that you know he shipped me, you know, late in the process, and so once I once I got that, I was like, oh, this is yeah. just. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> On your website, you describe it as your showgirl's adventure. So you feel like this has sort of been a journey, an odyssey? Uh, yeah, I mean, ever since I saw it, I, I, I've always been kind of fascinated with it. And then um, a couple of years after that, I um, just, you know, like like I do, play around with um, some edits. I, I made a... Um, 
Black Swan Showgirls mashup, um, and where I took the audio from Black Swan and, and took visuals from Showgirls and kind of cut them over the Black Swan audio. At, at that time, you know, the trailer mashups, you know, a lot of people were doing them online, and it was just one of those things to, like, oh, that that, that looks like fun. Yeah, Let me think of fun. two titles that might work together, and I think Black Swan was coming out, I think three weeks, it hadn't come out yet. So it was like three weeks, you know, kind of leading up to it. You know, people were excited for it. And um, that, it just was, it just was perfect, you know. Uh, and that kind of got a little bit of traction online, you know. Perez Hilton posted it, it was on like Gawker, um, you know, it, it made the rounds back in the day. Right, <laughs> So that's kind of like the middle of my adventure. And then, yeah. um, and then this is definitely, you know, the, the the culmination, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, what is it meant for you to have a project that was your own personal thing, apart from your sort of day to day work that you do as an editor or filmmaker? What was this thing? I, what did it bring you in your life? I, you know, I, I had been making movies all my life and was playing around with video cameras when since I was a little kid, and so it was. Um, it was always something that I that I did, but after I went to film school, um, kind of did did that whole thing, um, and you know had like a, for the most part like a good experience. But um, after college, I, I kind of got a job in television in Chicago, and then moved to Los Angeles, and you know would still kind of work on things that were that were fun and, and cool, but they were never my own, you know. And when when you're the editor, it's like usually a, a the concepts already kind of come up with and you know it's there it's already filmed and you get the footage and you know I, I really enjoyed the editing process the most out of all my all my stuff that I did you know my my whole life so I was definitely drawn to like the post-production side of it um and over the last couple of years you know just maybe it's as, as you get older and reality sets in you're just like okay like I'm gonna be happy being a television editor like that's 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 great you know i'm very lucky fortunate you know have to have work um and this was just um when, when i had this idea for you know the the documentary it was i i kept it super close i, I didn't didn't make any you know kind of statements about it online i didn't even t tell my some of my closest friends i just was you know obviously like my husband knew i was working on it at the time but um but I, it was a way for me to kind of just figure out what it was first without like setting myself up for any sort of, you know, expectation because, you know, this is the first thing that I've done, you know, documentary by myself. And so I, I wasn't, it was just more just like a protection, I guess you could say. Just yeah. If, well, you never know if, how things are going to. If it didn't work out and yeah. what you, whatever, like I, I, I just, and I knew like whatever I made there would be an audience for, you know, within the showgirls community. So, you know, if it just turned into, you know, a fun set of interviews and, you know, I could throw it up on Vimeo, then that would be, that would be cool. Um, so it, it was just kind of part of the, the, the journey of it. And once I kind of started, um, cause I edited it for about like a year and a half. Um, and I had, I think like six or seven different rough cuts before, you know, I actually started, prepping it to like submit to festivals. And so I, I had met um, through one of my, the contributors, um, I actually met like the producer of the film, Ariana Garfinkel, and she, uh, cause I knew I needed somebody to kind of help figure out what 
to do with where to start submitting, like all the legal stuff right. to get some financing and, and all that. And uh, she was just like a huge help. And so we basically, you know, she gave me some notes and we talked about, you know, getting it ready to submit. And we started submitting um, in November, when was it, 20, 2018? Yeah, because then, and then Tribeca South by were the first ones we submitted to. And, and you know, we heard back from Tribeca first. And so, I mean, that was just like, couldn't ask for a better premiere. <laughs> what were the screenings like? Would anyone show up in costume or uh, were there devotees with <laughs> swag and t-shirts? <laughs> you know, it was funny. The, the Tribeca screenings were um, just the nature of theaters in New York. They're a lot smaller, you right. know? And so we, um, like one of like the, cause we did four screenings and like the last one maybe had like seven, 40, maybe 40 seats or six, 50 seats. I mean, it felt, it, I mean, it's definitely like the smallest theater I've been in. And, you know, with, with those things, you don't get a lot of the, um, there was a, some hardcore fans there, you know, but there was a lot of people there for the festival. Um, and so I felt like it was at some of like the, 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 the gay film festivals or some of the cult film festivals. Those are where, you know, you really had, uh, more kind of like, you know, visceral reactions to it. So, um, like in Austin, I was at Fantastic Fest and they did a, um, they did like a brown rice and veggie eating contest beforehand. Oh and they were giving God. out copies of the Blu-ray, <laughs> and, uh, which was like, there was food all over the floor, right. um, which was, which was hilarious. And then later that in the festival, they did a, um, a live, I guess every year they do like a live script read. That's like a drinking game. Right. So they, it was like all, uh, they got all women to do, um, to read the parts and Peaches Christ <laughs> too, who was reading, uh, the part of Crystal Connor. So that was, uh, that was fun. And, and a lot of times they would, some festivals did like, you know, double, double features and showed it with, with showgirls and stuff. So it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. I love that. Um, so tell people how they can see it. So it'll be uh, on all your kind of streaming, uh, not streaming, but on the digital on-demand services. So um, iTunes, um, Amazon, uh, Fandango, I believe. But it'll be available on June 9th for, for rent, for purchase. So And then I think the Blu-rays will be out in July. Remember Blu-rays? Blu-rays are a thing. I know. That's amazing. I know. I have to get one. <laughs> I love it. Um, do you have a favorite scene in Showgirls? I do. I think it would have to be the... I go back and forth. I get I get that question a lot, and I feel like I, I kind of alternate. Um, but I it always, for me, points back to the Spago doggy chow That is scene, so it, it, it's... nutty because it's the most opulent setting in the world beautiful looking mm. expensive and the conversation is so innate absurd it's it's so crazy and then yeah that, and that's also one of my favorite scenes in, in the film in the documentary too it's like you know we, i took these kind of two david schmader and adam Neyman, you know they're kind of put their uh commentary butted up next to each other and you know adam, <clears throat> adam kind of goes into the uh what Verhoeven was doing filmmaking behind it. You know, he breaks the 180 degree rule, which I had never noticed. I know. Uh, I was fascinated by that. I was like, oh, yeah, interesting. It did, it isn't yeah. an effective moment. Yeah, there and, and and yeah, it's one of those things that you don't really 
realize yet because everything they're saying is so insane. But when you go back, but there is like a shift. Um, and it's slowly, you know, kind of Verhoeven's way of, of saying, you know, the two women are kind of turning into the same to the same person. But yeah, that's that's definitely my favorite. What about you? Um, I like when Nomi's dancing in the club in the pink dress and she's like, I like a lot of the oh. dancing stuff. Um, I like when she yeah. interview, you know, um, imitates Crystal and Arms there's so yeah. many. There's not a there's never a dull moment in never. that movie. There's no every scene has its has its magic and yeah and, and new things kind of you can watch it yeah like certain know, camp movies like jump out can't stop the music with the village people you go back back and watch that and you're like this is a slog I mean there's the YMC name number <laughs> and then it's a slog but Showgirls it delivers on on every level um, good luck with your movie um, I just you, feel like for something that was such a quote unquote disaster. It's brought me so much joy. I mean, the people that made it are like mm-hmm. heroes to me. When I think about the yeah. course of my life <clears throat> and how much fun I've had with this movie, you must feel that way. I, I agree. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It, it's 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 interesting when you think about you know how we define you know success and 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 you know what it means to be you know something that kind of quote you know stands the test of time and, and it, it just it. it Yes, by by kind of traditional standards, it, it, it bombed, quote, bombed at the box office. But, you know, it made its money back in, in VHS sales and rentals and stuff. So you can't even say it was like a commercial failure anymore. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it has just endured in a way that's strange and funny. And and there's the, it's such a unique film and, and you know a unique viewing experience that i think people are going to respond to it for years and years to come in new ways you know ways that we're not even you know conversation they're gonna have conversations about it that we're not having now you know yeah. like i said i it's you know i couldn't have made this film 10 years ago and 10 years from now you know we'd be having different conversations about all this stuff so yeah i also loved how your film points out that there's certain movies that at the time are hailed, but they don't age well at all. Like Forrest Gump is one for sure. I was so glad you called that out. And I think American Beauty was another one where at the time we were really into it, but they don't, they don't wear well. Um, Yeah. I mean, how many good movies have you seen where you're just like, Oh, this is a really good movie. I, and never, there's never a desire to, I never need to see that again. Whereas if you could measure the joy if it was quantifiable that this has brought to people since then, I think it would outjoy yeah. Out of Africa, yeah, Forrest Gump, oh. The Last Emperor. <laughs> the other thing that your movie brings up is um, the chip obsession. They are obsessed with chips in Showgirls. Mm-hmm. And don't mm-hmm. they click chips? They, they, they toast with the chips at the, the doggy chow, you know, which David Schmader is like, you know, all the motifs, like all the weird recurring. He has a whole list yeah. of of things that he goes through uh, before his screenings. And yeah, it's the chips, it's the nails, it's um, talking about naked, being naked while you're naked, yeah. you know, just these kind of strange things that um, just kind of keep reoccurring throughout the throughout the movie. Brown rice and veggies, you know, just uh, burgers, fries. Yes. Like, it's just bizarre. <laughs> she can eat a burger like um, nobody's business. But um, so are you on social media? Should people follow you anywhere, anything like that? Yeah, yeah. All the my I'm on social. I'm uh, Mikhail's Navy on Instagram, and uh, you don't know me. Film 
uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, so that's the way to kind of follow the film and keep up with the journey. Awesome. Well, congrats on that. And uh, thanks for the, the interview. Thanks. And if I had a chip, I would reach up to the Skype screen and toast oh. you with a, with a chip. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks so much. <laughs> thanks again to Jeffrey McHale. Check out his movie on the online platforms You Don't Know Me. All right, so this happened. Um, as you know, there's a lot of unrest in the world. Um, marches and protests in response to the George Floyd murder and all of that fallout. And as it was sort of unfolding, I've been sort of thinking about something I've observed. I mentioned earlier that I co-created this game called You Don't Know My Life with my friend Jeb Havens. Um, they're the game is based on the questions that I have used in my interviews. And um, there's a, there's a group of questions that are very simple. They say like, whatever the thing is, and then go like vomit story, go or road trip story, go. And people share whatever story they want, positive, negative, what anything having to do with that thing. And we have a question in the deck called uh, that says police story, go. And I've hosted game nights and played with, all white groups of people I've hosted and, and uh, facilitated for all, all black groups of people and mixed groups of people. And the difference between the stories that the white people tell and the black people tell when that card comes up is so stark and pronounced. I mean, I haven't been living under a rock. I know there's systemic racism in our country and our world, but I was shocked actually at how divided it is and how pronounced it is. I mean, to a person, um, the white people's stories are always like when they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing and got caught, but then got let go. They're sort of benign and a little cheeky. Like I was super high, you guys, and I was driving home and this cop stopped me because I had a taillight out, but um, I guess he thought I was cute or whatever because he just let me go. Those are the, the white people's stories are always like that. The black people's stories are always about how they weren't doing anything wrong and they still got questioned, frisked, and worse, like harassed. And it was every time. It was, it was almost like, I, I, just, I don't know, I just couldn't believe the difference of it. And every time the car would come up, I'd go, here we go, you know. Of course, when I'm playing the game and actually answering questions myself, the police stories that I usually share are about how one time I played a cop in a drag queen beauty contest in a sketch. Or I tell the story about how once I dressed as a zombie police cop, bicycle cop, and uh, danced in a thriller flash mob at the YouTube space, and it was really fun. Those are my big police stories, and they don't even involve police. And I've been on the planet over five decades. And those are my police stories. I think that's what people mean when they talk about privilege. But uh, something's in the air and it feels different this time uh, a little bit, I hope. Uh, and I'm going to try to do my part to help bring about change. But um, just thought, thought uh, I'd share what I have observed from talking to people and having them share their stories as part of this game. All right. That's enough. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye! <laughs>